Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we talk about how behavioural biases can affect investors and what you can do to defend against them. With Maya Welford, behavioural finance expert, Stephen Peters, senior investment specialist, and Will Hobbs, chief investment officer. Welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. This week, we'll look at the week in our rear view mirror, including the latest from corporate America, and we explore the role of behavioural finance in fund management. Welcome, Stephen and Will. Good to be speaking with you both today on the podcast. I hope you've been able to enjoy the summer months. I personally still don't know how we're at the end of August already. It doesn't feel like we've had enough summer in the UK this year with the lack of sunshine. Will, welcome back. Let's start off with you. What has caught your eye since coming back? Wow, Maya, that was quite an introduction. Yes, I agree on the weather. I haven't had much chance to experience it, but the lovely to speak to you both and hello, everybody. Sorry. I guess the main thing uh, that was sort of occupying thoughts while I was away was actually China. And there's all sorts of noise and no little schadenfreude on show. I thought you and Rob Mansell actually covered that very well last week. We've also written a lot on you know what now seems to be happening um, over the years. But actually, it's interesting, I think, particularly in the last week to watch how the AI craze has developed over these last few months. Yes, I saw the NVIDIA results last night. This is the US monster microchip designer for those wondering. Yes precisely and it's amazing how much hype there is and yet this company managed to beat the hype evaluation multiples are difficult to get your head around to be honest however investors seem to be following this idea that in a gold rush you want to buy up all the um, all the picks and shovels uh, and nvidia if you think about it um, is one of the ways that you can do that it sits kind of right at the epicenter of this kind of evolving emerging ai ecosystem and well i'm assuming that you're not making a recommendation to buy or sell an individual share here. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Maya. Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, and also, you know, past performance, all those kind of normal warnings. The regulator is right on insisting that past performance is a very, very poor guide to what comes next. But I would caution that if generative AI is the real thing, you know, chat, GPT and all its various progeny, if it turns out to be a so-called general purpose technology that catapults us into the future, and that is not guaranteed, there are plenty of plausible naysayers still. But anyway, if it is, then technology can move in very mysterious ways. Think of the parable, and this is way before any of us were born, as usual, although I'm probably closest, uh, but think of the parable of the dynamo. So in 1867, its invention allowed for the practical generation of electricity. This in turn allowed a separate power source to be attached to each machine in the factories of the day, which in a relatively, and you think it replaced steam power, which in a relatively short space of time allowed Henry Ford, the famous Henry Ford, to mechanise production with a moving assembly line, which was kind of a revolution at the time. On came standardised car parts and very quickly mass-produced affordable cars. Now, the Model T and its successors transformed American and later European society. It allowed people to move around more quickly and cheaply than ever before. It provided high-paying work to many immigrants who could not easily converse in English. Uh, it helped create the suburb, the shopping centre, the domestic tourism industry, the motel. I could go on and on and on. I won't. You'll be glad to know. But the point is that most of this happened within an investable time frame. 
Don't get too carried away with the initial gold rush and the associated headlines. If it is transformative, it will be a lot, lot broader than that. Um, and the chip stocks, you need to design your investment net accordingly. Anyway, rant, rant, rant. You are now free to discuss behavioral. I see your holiday reading has been eclectic as ever, but definitely keep <laughs> the content recommendations coming through. I really do enjoy reading them. And that nicely leads us on to what we're going to be discussing today. So the many biases or tendencies inherent to humans and how they are affecting our ability to invest. And Stephen, you speak to a lot of professional investors, you know, it's your job. So what are your thoughts on this? Yeah. Hi, Maya. Hi, Will. Yeah, a really interesting discussion. And it just all of that uh, discussion about uh, tech just takes me back to the 2000s when everybody was very excited about the paradigm shift that was going to come around around technology then various stocks that went to the stars and then fell off so things change but what doesn't change is human behavior the active fund management industry are humans even the quantitative models the computer-based models are built by humans but we as humans all have biases that they've developed over thousands of years these heuristics to help us live our lives efficiently in my job when I'm speaking to the fund managers, it's important to know what they're buying and selling and why they're doing it. But it's just as important, if not more important, to understand why they're making that decision from a from a behavioural perspective. Because unfortunately, uh, as much as they would like to try and convince themselves or convince us as investors that they are unbiased and unemotional decisions, it probably isn't true. And there's lots and lots of behavioural biases that we demonstrate. And Maya, you're the expert on this. So um, let's tell us some about some of those big behavioural biases. Yeah, so it's an interesting space. I've really enjoyed our ongoing discussions over the past few years, Stephen. When it comes to the biases, well, actually, what I would like to flag is that within the team here, we usually prefer to refer to these biases more as tendencies. Because if you hear the word bias, there's often, you know, negative connotations associated with the word bias. So we choose to use the word tendency. Um, there are hundreds and hundreds of tendencies or biases. It can actually feel a bit overwhelming if you just Google bias. Hundreds of things come up. There's all sorts of weird and wonderful representations and summaries. So there's even a periodic table of biases that I've seen. But if we think now a bit more about our clients, Stephen, some of our biases which come up include anchoring. So this is where you're influenced by a particular value and this might be irrelevant and skew, you know, how we're making decisions. Then linked to this is the recency bias. And this is where information which is more recent comes to mind much more easily and it skews how people are making decisions. Then there's others like loss aversion. I know many people have heard about the loss aversion. This is where losses feel way more painful emotionally than any equivalent gain. And we see this a lot. And then confirmation bias. This is a really, really big one that we see both in clients and also in our fund managers. And Stephen, I know you're going to speak about a bit about this today, but it's really where we seek and interpret information in a way that kind of aligns, agrees and, and correlates with our existing, pre-existing beliefs and views. There's so many more that I could kind of touch on. But Stephen, if we think about the context of our fund managers, what are your views? Can I just interrupt quickly? Sorry, because I was just thinking of one of those and I read a great story in one of my weird books. It was looking at sort of US media coverage over the last sort of in the years since 9-11 and looking proportionally at what had been covered. Now, in the years since 9-11, uh, the tragedy of 9-11, terrorists have managed to kill 
tragically, seven people a year. Now, drownings in bathtubs have been 300 a year. And without being flippant about it, it shows the sort of, you know, the, the amazing difference. But I mean, that's something that none of us would even think about, in a sense, because of the sort of disproportionate coverage. But sorry, that was a weird little interlude, but I just thought I'd get in there first. No, that's really helpful. And it, and it also definitely speaks to, you know, the role of media in, in shaping our kind of viewpoints as well and, and how we're thinking and feeling. But yeah, Stephen, what are your views on all of this? Well, just briefly, my favourite bias is the Dunning, what's known as the Dunning-Kruger effect. And the Dunning-Kruger effect is a, is a bias where we all believe we are better than average <laughs> at a particular task. And the usual one that's given is, is driving. We all believe we are better than average uh, at driving. Now, clearly, by definition, we can't all be better than average at something, including fund management. So what do we do? Well, we look at evidence for all of these. We do it in a number of ways. We do it by clearly speaking to the managers and talking to them, questioning them and quizzing them, but also by analysing data. And the good source of data is the transactions that a fund manager makes, the buys and the sells of whatever they're, they're, they own. So for instance, back in 2016, I actually spent quite a lot of time looking at a, a UK equity manager and his trading in his fund, both before and after the EU referendum vote. Now, a number, I could even say quite a lot of UK equity managers performed really badly immediately around the EU referendum vote, simply because their portfolios were positioned for it to be going one way. And as it turns out, the result went the other. And as a result, many of them suffered quite bad performance in the immediate months uh, afterwards. This particular manager I looked at, what you could see was an awful lot of very short-term trading repositioning afterwards, almost panicked performance really, or panicked behaviour, reflecting the fact that that manager's worldview going into the into the referendum was wrong and he was, uh, wasn't fully considering and reflecting any alternative or alternate outcomes in his portfolio. He was so sure of what was going to happen, he didn't prepare, and then he panicked, which is a great example of a bias in play and him simply shutting the stable door after the horses bolted. I think this also really highlights the importance of a pre-mortem. So kind of making a plan up front and making a plan A, a plan B, and so so on. What other things have you noticed? Well, I'd say that it's reasonably well known that fund managers tend to hold on to winning names, stocks that have done all well, investments that have done well for them longer than they probably should, longer than is the optimal time. Equally, they love talking about how good they are at identifying. Don't we yeah, all, can I just indeed. say, don't we yeah. all? It's a very important part yeah. of being particularly yeah. men. Ego preservation. There's another bias for you. <laughs> and we all love talking about how good they are at uh, identifying good investments, but they are generally, uh, this is across the industry, I'd say, and a far less articulate at defining a process for for selling. So when I speak to managers a lot, I try to talk to them even more about their mistakes than about their successes, because it really highlights uh, what they may have learned from them on reflection and why they made them and hopefully why they won't make them again. Yeah, definitely. It's easier said than done, though, isn't it? I think the confirmation bias, which I touched on before, it's heavily at play at times like this. You know, it causes managers to hold on longer than they should. Linking to this is the sunk cost fallacy. So this is where, and Stephen, you know, you're seeing this time and time again, the tendency for people to continue a course of action, even if actually abandoning that course of action is probably 
the better outcome and more beneficial. And it can link to, you know, the amount of effort that that people have gone through. So for our fund managers, if they've gone through all this effort of investing, they're probably less likely to want to reverse their decision or, or change their course of action. Something I will say about these biases is they appear across all elements of life, not just in the context of investing. For example, you know, you buy a cinema ticket, the film's boring, but instead of leaving, you stay put because you've already paid for the ticket. But if I we had come- exactly that experience, can I just say? I had exactly that experience, but it was a children's film, so I couldn't leave my children in the cinema alone. But- <laughs> <laughs> and if we come back to fund managers, through my work with you, Stephen, you know, we've identified that some managers are more aware of these issues than others. And there's companies who will provide them with analysis of their behavior to help them improve. We think this is important as the phrase goes goes win or learn not to win or lose but Stephen what are the best managers doing in your opinion so I think it's important to say that there is no one right thing one set of behaviors that marks out in advance uh, what makes a good fund manager you can't kind of look for it and say you have it and you don't in advance of meeting them experiencing them but as an example we think a manager who's uh, a man, and I talk about an individual or a, or a firm or a group of people who are really open to improvement, really open to learning, is just a really important uh, mental or cultural trait. Uh, that might involve access to systems or to data, but equally, and I think as importantly, they that involves being working within a culture, an investment culture or, or, or culture of work that makes it possible for them to succeed and to learn. So, Maya, as you know, you and I, we've been working together on this, haven't we? And we discussed a lot of things that we felt that indicated a culture was was able to succeed. Yeah, we have. And I've really enjoyed working with you, Stephen. So there are some key elements which signal a culture conducive to successful outcomes. So some of the points which come to mind are fund managers being open minded. So when I say this, it can be pretty broad. So open to change, open to mistakes, open to being wrong and also admitting that too. You know, we are human after all. We're not robots. And although... um, (laughs) Not yet. Not yet, not yet. (laughs) Who knows what the future holds. But also hierarchy can really stifle good decision making amongst Mm. other things. So when we're going into visiting our fund managers, Stephen, you know, the types of things we're looking for are, do they have a strong workplace culture? Are the decisions just being driven for the top or are junior views more listened to? You know, we're really, really thinking about that, that lack of hierarchy when it comes to decision making and also diversity, you know, it's a big one and and we're also looking for that and it, we know it comes in many, many different forms. You know, within the team, we talk a lot, Stephen, about that diversity of thought piece, but I know that we're also thinking about kind of the diversity of background. So if I'm seeing a fund that we're speaking with and they're all from the same universities, then this can be a bit of a red flag for me. Yeah. And the, this point about diversity is one that is one that includes is included in the list of things that we're talking to managers about uh, on top of talking to them about you know the stocks they own and the risk management processes in place that they have. But we talk a lot to them about these matters such as diversity to get a better sense of what's going on within their team or their business. So, for instance, Myra and I, we spoke to a manager towards the end of last year. And that particular manager, he was looking to hire a colleague to work with closely on the in the, in the fund that he ran. And we, we explored this in a bit of depth. And it was quite clear to us that he he was looking for somebody just like him, who kind of thought like him, who had a similar process, probably looked a bit like him probably went to the same school, university, education background, whatever it was. And we just felt that wasn't great. We felt that it was better, it'd be better for the end client, ultimate investors, that there would be 
better results, better performance would come about if there was more debate and more challenge rather than just a kind of a culture of difference. But it's important to say, I think the best managers do do this kind of thing proactively. So there's another manager that we invest with, a UK manager, who does explicitly use a, a third party company to help how they work, to look at them, how they work, both as a team, but also their decision making processes. Five years ago, they used them. A series of recommendations were made. And last year, the managers, uh, so five years ago to last year, and then last year, the third party came in again, reassessed the data, looked at whether the managers had taken on board the recommendations made previously and what difference they had made. And, and that, to me, is a great example of managers not just talking the talk about, yes, we believe in this, but actually walking the walk and committing real money to making themselves be better at their job. And this really leads us on to you and your team, Stephen. So we looked at how your team works and what you could do to improve your own decision making. So let's let's chat about that. Yeah, it was really useful, wasn't it? Well, I found it really useful. The most useful thing I found about it was um, to have a critical friend. I think this is just the case in life generally. But if you've got a really critical <laughs> friend um, and for you to come in and say to us and our team, why do you do this? Is this the right way of doing this? What other ways could you look at this particular topic or, or problem and one of the most interesting and useful things that I thought I felt that you you, you did in your uh, work with us was assessing the decision making tendencies of of us as individuals wasn't it yeah I'm pleased to hear that it was useful I haven't I'm not sure if I've been called a critical friend before but you know I'll take it Stephen you will probably know better than anyone that all of us possess these behavioral biases and these behavioral tendencies you know they're not just exclusive to a particular group of people and definitely me within the behavioral finance team I also experienced behavioral biases and behavioral tendencies so the first thing that I did with the team was really to educate uh, educate you uh, and raise your own self-awareness of the behavioral biases and tendencies that you might be experiencing and really the aim of this was to help you to make better decisions as individuals but also as a team and then following on from that and stemming on from that helped you to better identify these in fund managers themselves and we worked together to form some recommendations of what you and the team could take forward to improve your own processes yeah and and we have incorporated um a lot of what you you said and recommended in our process and it's an ongoing process we continue to work on them improve them develop them and we'll be doing that ongoing so we do it in two aspects as you said we do it in how we make decisions as individuals and as a team but also in how we deliberately consider them when we're speaking to managers and and analyzing and assessing them on the on their behavioral matters we don't score them and we don't rate them. They are complementary to our existing set of criteria. And this is deliberate and it's because they're just so entwined. Fundamentally, we think that if there's a, a poor investment culture at a business, for example, if, if decisions are very hierarchical, if there is a culture of blame or, or that kind of uh, negative tone of a, of, a, of, a, of a business, it will then definitely have an impact, won't it, on how a business retains its staff, how it motivates its staff, its people, how it how it makes decisions and how it deals with the mistakes that it will inevitably make. How does it identify them? How does it try to not make them in the future? And how does it learn from them in, an, in a really positive way? All of which we think should be um, ultimately reflected in, in a company's ability to produce good performance, which is what it's there for, for, uh, for its investors. 
Thanks, Stephen. I've really enjoyed working with your your team on this. Will, before we wrap up, have you got any final thoughts? I love that. It was super interesting. Thank you very much. Both and and, and so I mean just a second to everything you've said. And and as you know, you know, with the points about how to order your meetings and things, this is something importantly we did several years ago on TAA, the tactical asset allocation, where you know the team are trying to add little performance cherries on top of some of the returns that the strategic asset allocation and Stephen's team are delivering in that kind of multi-asset asset class fund and portfolio context. Uh, and the interesting thing there was like getting people you know bossy people like me to speak last and having like you say the juniors the more introverted people contribute first to make sure that you're not biasing people uh, ahead of their or influencing people in the in the wrong way what you want is you know if you're going to have a diverse team and lots of diverse thoughts then what's the point in not hearing them and, and getting them involved and that you know our experience as you know is that 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 focus on on biases and diversification of thought has resulted you know, it's part of the reason why long-term returns and have been so satisfactory, in my opinion, from the, you know, from the whole product range. So, yes, a very good, interesting piece. Thank you very much, both. Absolutely. Will, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us today. And that's it for another episode of Word on the Street. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.